0: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am really thrilled. We have a great show for you today, one that I think is really impactful. I have with me a wonderful guest, Dr. Kinza Barakal, She is a cardiac anesthesiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital, MGH. She's also the Education Director for the Cardiac Anesthesia Division there, and she is a founding member of the Mother's Support Group that she helped to develop. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is how we can support mothers in anesthesiology, an incredibly, incredibly important topic. And I'm so thrilled, Kinza, to have you on the show. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
0: So let's start, uh, just tell people a little bit about how you got interested in improving support for people who identify as moms.
1: Um, Sure. So uh, a little bit about my background. I grew up in the Boston area. Um, I did my categorical um, anesthesia residency at Brigham and Women's and stayed there for my cardiothoracic fellowship um and when i was done with fellowship i came over to mgh um at the time i was 30 weeks pregnant starting a new job um i've been at mgh for 5 years and i split my time between cardiac and the main or um and since 2019 as you said i've been a founding member of our mom's support group and my most important job is um being a mom to my two kids jack who's 5 and leona who's 3 um so, how we got started, it all started actually like very organically. Uh, myself and another member of our faculty, Anna Ward, who has since moved on to Mayo, uh, had been discussing the challenges we were facing as working moms. So, our schedule predictability, pumping at work, being pregnant at work, child care issues, finding child care, getting out in time to relieve the child care, sleep schedules, like all the things that are challenging um for new moms and how those things interface with our job in particular and we just felt that it was important um to have a clear and like distinct voice within our department and we you know all the mothers in our group in our department had been supporting each other kind of offline behind the scenes you know asking each other between cases, like, what do you do for this? Who's your, um, what do you do for childcare? Where do you pump? How do I get, how do I become a mom? How do I deal with this once I come back from maternity leave? um but there was no formal pathway for providing like peer support or advocacy for this demographic within our department so that's why we started the group in 2019 um and when we started the group we also recognized the importance of including the CRNAs in the group um they're a big part of that demographic and like absolutely vital to the our department in general um so one of our other founding members Jillian Robinson is um is a CRNA and we wanted to be inclusive across like all provider roles. Um, And, you know, when we started the group, we weren't exactly sure where we were going. We just knew we needed a voice and it grew from there. And this was in like fall 2019. So shortly thereafter the pandemic happened um, and everything that came with the pandemic clinically, as well as like domestically with childcare issues, homeschooling, everything just like further emphasized like the importance of why this was so needed in our specialty. Um, And, you know, female MDs have a higher rate of burnout and report a disproportionate amount of time spent on domestic issues in addition to their clinical work. And that was further exacerbated by the pandemic. So I think this all kind of came to head at like a very like critically important time. Um, And, when we first approached our leadership and explained our mission um, we were very lucky to gain like immediate support without any hesitation. And we've been um, really grateful to have their unwavering support throughout like our initiatives since our time of our creation.
0: That's fabulous. That's exactly what, what we would always hope. So, you decided to kind of create a visible and accessible support network for those who identify as mothers. How did you go about doing that?
1: Um, So once we had had kind of gotten the okay from, from the department to form this group, we, we just emailed out the entire department and basically just let people know we were forming the group. And like I said, we wanted the group to be inclusive across provider roles. So trainees, CRNAs, uh, attendings. We've since expanded to include like non-clinical staff within our department. Um, and then we also wanted to be inclusive of all different roles across motherhood. So if it's whether you're a new mom, um, an expecting mom, you have older kids, um, you're someone who just identifies as a mother figure, um, or you're someone who's thinking about having kids and you're not sure what that's going to look like um within the confines of our specialty or you're thinking about oh site preservation like any of those kind of categories we wanted to be inclusive across all of them so that people felt like welcome to be um welcome to be in the group and then once we kind of recruited people who wanted to be part of it we then kind of put out the second call which was um are you to the people in the group are, is there an area you'd be interested in mentoring other members of the group? Um, And we wanted to keep that very confidential. um, But that includes areas like pregnancy loss, IVF, um, you know, single motherhood, raising neurodiverse children and things like that.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. So really a wide array of people who had, personal experience or expertise in this area or wanted mentorship or were thinking about really just it sounded like very open to anyone who thought they could either help or be helped by this
1: for sure I and mean, yeah exactly um yeah and like beyond that we want to you know we provide mentorship in these like kind of some of these harder topics mm-hmm. but also just wanted to provide support on like a day-to-day basis just like People be able to come to us to say, like, how did you manage this when you came back from maternity leave or I'm having an issue pumping or this or that? Um, and I think just the presence of the group and its existence is important because it really highlights that motherhood is hard and it's also valued and balancing that with our practice can be really challenging. Like we work in a field, there's early mornings, unpredictable evenings, there's overnight work and like difficult physical and emotional clinical care. And that care presents different challenges depending on where you are along like this journey of motherhood. So for me, like the things that I found difficult when I was pregnant as a provider aren't difficult for me now, like physically moving beds, doing being on my feet for a long case overnight and things like that. But now that I have young kids at home, like there's other challenges. Like how am I going to get out in time? How am I getting my kids are home? My kids are sick or how am I going to manage um, balancing these things? So I think beyond like the one-on-one support we provide, I feel like the visibility in and of itself also provides a support. Um, and we just had an article out in A about, our work because we wanted to be able to share this with other departments like a how-to guide for like this is what it looked like at our large academic center this is what you could implement if you're interested in something else and we titled it championing the mom um, because we wanted the word mom in there because I feel like there is almost still a little bit of a stigma and you know, the mom role, being a mom or mother figure is not something we should shy away from or hide from or have to apologize for. And so we really want to advocate like two things are true. You can be an amazing mom and you can be an amazing clinician and do both like unapologetically. So that's kind of beyond the the one-on-one mentorship. We also just wanted to be visible within the department.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So just to kind of delve in a little bit. Let's say that um, someone has had a pregnancy loss and they're they're understandably very concerned about it. They may not want to sort of send an email out saying, you know, hey, yes. this happened. I mean, you know, can I help? So what would, what would they actually do to get support through your network? Would they email you or like how would they find out who the people who have self-identified as being there for that particular concern are?
1: Right. What we've done in the past with that issue, obviously it's very sensitive, is usually... We are a big department, but as you are as well, but as you know, people have a sense within, especially like friend groups and things, what is going on. Either someone has approached us, meaning one of the founding members, um, the three of us, or um, we have kind of heard through other people, whether it's other residents or other CRNAs that this person is struggling with this issue. And have reached out to them individually and just said, without also outing the other people who have gone through it, hey, you know, we are so sorry for your loss and you're going through this. We're here for you to support you. If you want to talk to somebody who has been through this as well, we have providers who are willing to to talk to you and we are happy to connect you. And then we have ultimately connected people that way.
0: Great. That sounds absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, So. When you think about people who are trying to navigate pregnancy, parental leave, how what what give us some examples of the guidance you provide? Uh, what what do you recommend yeah. people take into account?
1: Um so I on a very big picture, I think that um one piece of advice I try to give residents and junior attendings personally is that if you're thinking about having kids in anesthesia, there's never really a great time professionally to do that. Being a trainee and having kids has a whole host of challenges, as you know. Um, And, but being a new attending also has like a host of challenges. So what I try to say to people who are thinking about having kids is like, as, as difficult as it is, try to separate your professional and your home life and within your, you and your partner, Kind of decide like what is the best timing for us without putting our life on hold or whatever that family structure you want and what that timing is within the family structure. And then kind of figuring out the professional side second as a secondary piece because I think everyone in anesthesia, we're all very type A, we're planners, you know, we account for every little thing that could happen. But I think that there's never going to be that perfect time. So that's that's one just like big piece of advice Um, in a more concrete sense in terms of pregnancy in our practice. There were this was one of our like biggest kind of aims for the advocacy side of the group. Um, And the two big things we wanted to tackle were one having a centralized and standardized um, scheduling guidelines for pregnant providers. And then the second thing was to revisit the call requirements for pregnant attendings. Um, so in terms of scheduling, we have over like 70 anesthetizing locations, multiple you know, buildings in which we perform anesthesia. So there's a lot of moving pieces and different scheduling Um, kind of pathways that are happening within the department. So there was a lot of confusion in terms of when you're pregnant, you know, who do I contact? When do I contact them? How do I change my assignment? If I get an assignment, I don't feel safe, especially if you feel that that changing that assignment is being met with resistance at like a, a more higher administrative role. So we wrote out we basically surveyed all the pods, you know, ortho, cardiac, PD, all of the different areas got a sense of who, you know, on a day to day, who's doing the scheduling. Sometimes that's a clinician and sometimes it's a non clinician, which is important because they might not recognize that you don't want to be in like the tavern room all day. Right. And so we basically wrote out for every um, section who does the scheduling, how to contact that person. Obviously it's up to the pregnant provider when they decide that they're comfortable disclosing the pregnancy. Um, And then we wrote out in every pod, like these would be within ortho, within cardiac, within offsite. These would be the rooms that are less preferable, right? So, you know, there's not I would say there's not a great amount of evidence for a lot of these exposures. Um, and so it's, and it's also provider dependent. So some people feel comfortable being in those rooms. Some people don't, some people do to a certain point, um, like the chemo rooms where there's active chemotherapy, things like that. But we just wanted it to be very standardized that like within these pods, these are the less preferred locations. This is who you would contact. If you are met with resistance, this is the next person that you would contact. Um, but also this is how you advocate for yourself. You do not, you know, this is how to avoid making day of changes because we didn't, we have 70, like I said, over 70 locations. There's no reason that people need to be in these like less preferred high radiation rooms, chemo rooms, et cetera. Um, but we also want to minimize like disruptions to patient care and, you know, historically female anesthesiologists have actually reported, been more likely to report maternal discrimination than other medical specialties. And I think some of it comes from maybe some of these issues, you know, you're asking for a change the day of, but you knew your assignment yesterday. So putting a little bit of the onus on the pregnant provider to go through these pathways, make a switch at an appropriate time, um, you know, recognizing that Cases do move in the morning and sometimes day of changes need to happen, but just putting pathways in so that everybody um, can work, you know, safely and efficiently and do do right by our providers and our patients.
0: Yeah. What about call? Call is tricky, right? And I don't mean taking the call. I mean- you know, you, it's real at a bigger place. It's relatively easy to avoid, let's say floral rooms for patients, uh, for uh, providers who are pregnant, but at night you might be the only attending or, you know, resident or whatever on. And if there's a, an emergency case that involves floral, right? Right. Like you're going to have to do it. So how do you navigate that part?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think call is, is, is hard. I think it's, I think that, you know, It is impossible in our specialty to mitigate like all risk, right? So when I was pregnant, I'm a cardiac provider. I was not in our EP rooms and I was not in our structural heart rooms. But overnight, I'm on call. I'm the only provider in house, and there's like an emergent impella placement. I'm going to have to do that, right? And there's I don't think there's a way to mitigate all of the risk, but. At the same time, I also didn't need to be in the flora rooms for like the other eight months of my pregnancy. So I think it's that balance. I mean, I have friends, obviously, in private practice where they are in flora rooms, because there's only so many providers, it's MD only, and it is what it is. But I think in these, and I think anyone who's interested in forming a group like this can kind of try to tailor the aspects that work and don't work for their practice, but in a large academic center, like we can avoid a certain amount of that risk. Um, and then in terms of call requirements, so um we wanted to update the call requirements for pregnant attendings. So they hadn't been revisited since like the late nineties. We were undergoing this whole work shift restructure as a department in 2020. So it was a very like natural time to revisit this. And we basically advocated for no overnight call for pregnant attendings after 32 weeks, which is also reflected in our residency call structure. Um, and I think this is something, again, if you're trying to present this to your department and go th- kind of get some of this advocacy work done, like this is a mutually beneficial decision because it, you know, takes kind of some of the weight off of you, the end of your pregnancy to have to do those calls. But also if someone gets put on bed rest or limited physical activity, things like that, it also takes some of the stress away from the department to not have to scramble to fill multiple overnight calls in that last um two months of the pregnancy. So I think identifying areas that are mutually beneficial for the department and the providers is one way to um, achieve some of these goals.
0: Absolutely. How about parental leave? What advice and guidance do you give people around parental leave?
1: You know, we have in our department, parental leave has traditionally been handled by our schedulers and the leadership, and it's, it's worked very well for us. We have a pretty Um, we have a very generous policy and we're also lucky to live in Massachusetts where there's paid bonding leave at the state level. So, um, again, I think, and I believe for residency as well, it's now become, it's longer than it used to and doesn't have to be made up. Yeah. That's a
0: huge change as of a few years ago, as you know, when you and I were, uh, you know, training, um, if you took any time a week, two weeks to a month, two months, you had to make up how much time you took, you had to make it up. Now the American Board of Anesthesiology allows residents and programs, if everyone agrees, it has to be agreed upon by the program and the resident um, and the department. But if everyone agrees to get up to two months forgiven, so you could take two months of parental leave and not have to make any of that time up. So it's a huge positive change, in my opinion. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner. With my family, we're having factor, and my daughter, my oldest daughter looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters, who are incredibly picky eaters, are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those, too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good. But the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to Factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at Factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. All right, and we're back.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. I think, and in seeing that, and, you know, like you said, so different from when we were training for both um, new moms to not feel guilty about having to take that time and like having that in the back of your head to make it up. But also for, um, you know, for male providers, like I, people who are new fathers, like I feel like, you know, when we were training, you wouldn't take any time off. I think my husband was a, a fellow when we, had our son, I think he took five, like oh, the, a week off, but that was it. But I'd so, I love to see that people are um, and, tr- and the trainees are able to spend, you know, time at home because it's such an important time. And Absolutely.
0: That- yeah. I, I always tell people when I had my first daughter, I had, I got a day off when I right. had my second daughter, I had a week off. And when I had my third daughter, I was an attending here. And I, so at the first two, I was a trainee. When I had my third daughter, I was already in an attending and I got a month off. And I, I remember walking, we were, I was walking with my wife and pushing the, our baby around the block and she did something. And I remember turning my, I said, how come the, how come the first two did, never did that? And she said, oh, they did it. You just weren't around to see yeah, it. You yeah,
1: you weren't there. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. And like, even I, medicine is so tough. feel like even eight weeks compared to other some other industries is, you know, not enough. But I, I am happy to see that we're like shifting in that direction um, within within our training. Um, but in terms of like navigating as an attending, like I said, we we're lucky to have a very like generous department. I think that comes from being a bigger group too, like you're able to take the time you need because there's enough people in the department to kind of backfill that. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think that's it, having that parental leave is is so key. And I, you know, the part I know best, of course, is the trainees. And I just think it, it, you're exactly right. I mean, the pressure that everyone, but certainly, you know, um, moms who were recovering from a delivery or a C section, you know, whatever it may have been, to feel that pressure to come back it was, I think, a real problem. And now that that's been relieved in many ways, I think that's a huge positive change. When you think about um, coming back, one of the big things for, um, moms when they come back, if they choose to breastfeed is thinking about navigating that. So how do you support new parents who choose to breastfeed?
1: Yeah. So this was another like very important issue for us. Like when we reached out to people informing the group, this was like a big concern, just being able to you know accomplish this within our 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 field um and there was a survey of women anesthesia trainees who, and it's basically the survey revealed that only 50 51% were able to achieve their desired breastfeeding duration um so again this comes back to us having like a large department where we are able to like support people um on a individual level we basically reach out to new moms who are coming back to work and are planning on breastfeeding. And, you know, I'll just get on the phone with somebody and walk them through like the logistics, like you're going to come to work at this time. You're This is where you're going to go. You need to get badge access to this pump room. You're going to put your stuff, you know, very, very like minute details, just to take alleviate some of that anxiety. Cause I think coming back to work in general is so anxiety provoking, but that, and then adding that piece onto it, just, feels very overwhelming when you've been home for a number of months. Um, so we'll just counsel people on like the day-to-day logistics, how to navigate that. Um, and one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was a fellow as pregnant, I was a fellow, um, was to never apologize for having to pump. And I try to pass that on to like all the new moms I chat with, like, do we need to be reasonable with our timing for pumping requests? Yes, you can't say like I need to pump at between 10:15 and 10:25. Like that's not going to be feasible given our work. But pumping is not a break. It's very isolating and it's physically demanding on top of our already like very physically demanding job. And I think a lot of young moms or new moms, I should say, feel guilty asking for, like, more when it comes to pumping, right? It's basically impossible to pump in a 15-minute morning break. Like, best-case scenario, it's 20 minutes, right? And I think we just need to move away from that stigma, which a lot of it, I think, is just kind of, like, self-induced in a way and just be very matter-of-fact. Like, I'm tell the floor leader the morning of, or if you're, you know, a CRNA or a trainee who's being supervised, like, Hello, I need to pump between these hours and these hours and just don't be apologetic about it. Just be like clear about it. Um, So that's one piece of advice that I give. Um, We are also currently working to formalize like department guidelines in terms of like what these breaks should be. We're working on that at a hospital level. Um, partially like with the, you know, our colleagues in internal medicine and surgery, obviously that looks very different depending if you're like in a clinic and you're billing and everything comes through RVUs versus our time. So every department's looks a little bit different, but just having that formalized at like an MGB level, um, and then also within our department for our like trainees and CRNAs, so it's equitable across all service lines. Um, and then the other p- big uh, initiative we had was, you know, we have many anesthetizing locations. We have a, one, had one nice pump suite in one area, but the other big perioperative center did not have anything. And it was basically impossible to get back to the other pumping suite. So we went to the hospital and advocated to put uh, uh, another suite in this other building just to make it you know feasible for the many perioperative providers in those in that building to pump so that was that was very exciting. that just got co- construction was completed last week, so um we're excited about that.
0: That's awesome. so yeah. you know, one of the things we've struggled with is what yeah. is you know when you think about you know it'd be great if you could just say. Like, you probably can on when you're in an internal medicine ward, right? You just hand your pager off, you go pump, and when right. you're done, you come back. For us in anesthesia, right, we ha- we can't just walk out of the OR. Someone has to come into the OR, as, as you know. And so, you know, when we schedule, when we're trying to schedule all the breaks and all the things and all the motion, you know, how much time should we plan for this? And I know that it depends. Different women need different amounts of time. And But, you know, is there any guidelines you give. And I'll, I'll just say, you know, obviously, if someone said, I need three, two hour pump sessions a day, right, that would right. be not probably right. not doable. If someone, right. you know, said, I can do it in three 20 minute sessions, that'd be very doable. And then there's must be somewhere in between where it starts to be, you know, so do you give any kind of guidelines, it should be this yeah. long, it should be somewhere in this range?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard, because, you know, like, to your point, everyone is a little bit different in terms of how long it takes. I think, it's, you know, there, there's probably a limit as to what is reasonable. Like you said, you cannot in our job, take a two hour morning break because it takes you a long time to pump. What we devised was that for every four hours, um, of work, you would get 30 minutes to pump. So in an eight hour day, which is less than our standard day, that would be like an hour. So that's, you know, whether that's three, 20 minute breaks, or two, if you're pumping three times or two half hour breaks, it's hard to be perfect. And, you know, no one's going to be there with a stopwatch until you get don't get back in 20 minutes. But I think just having that um, kind of a rough structure and to see if people can kind of fit their their pumping goals within that was how we decided the amount. Um, and it's a little bit arbitrary, but I think on average, it, it kind of does work out.
0: Yeah. And at least it gives you a minimum, right? There's just so yeah. that you know that. Yeah. But, and then um, the other
1: thing this was like, to your point, is the protection of, it's almost easier when you are solo or you're in a room that's being supervised because you can have someone to watch the patient. But it's also hard when you're in the supervising role to step away from for 30 plus minutes and be you know, chained to a pump for lack of better term. And then, you know, you hear an anesthesia stat and you're, you know what it is. So that is another piece. So we also included in the guidelines for attendings that there would be like coverage decided the morning of like, identify the person who's going to be covering your rooms if you're going to be stepping out.
0: Yep. That makes total sense. Do you have, Thoughts on wearable breast pumps? Is that something you recommend to folks to try? I mean, obviously not mandate, but if they want to try it, providing them, is that helpful?
1: Yeah, so we... um I think they're great. I mean, I think that's been, I think they're getting better too within the last couple of years. We definitely have a lot of providers, like especially the CRNAs in our department for whatever reason, they really like them. My friends that I, you know, friends from residency that I know who are in private practice where they don't get pump breaks because there's one break person and there's this many ORs, um, they use them as well. So I think they're like, I think they're they're great. They're acceptable within our, you know, perioperative space to use. So I think that is one barrier to make sure you've cleared if you're trying to um, use them in your in your department. Um, I think anecdotally, I've heard that they're not as efficient in terms of milk production as the non wearables. But I think it's a great um, option for people in the ORs and you know, the surgeons as well. Like them. So um, yeah, great. I think providing them for for residents would be would be amazing as well.
0: Yeah. And that's what we've done is to have some, um, available to those who want them, um, free of charge. They buy the bags, but they get the pump itself, which is quite expensive. And I think not uncovered right. by insurance. So um, oh, that's
1: great. I love that. Yeah.
0: That's
1: still um, that one. <laughs>
0: please, please. I, I think it's been helpful. You know, not everybody wants to use it as you said, but if you want to use it, it's nice to have. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what about thinking about kind of childcare, parenting resources, is that kind of dealt with in the same network where you have people designated to kind of, you know, uh, mentor people along those lines or or how do you handle recommendations there?
1: Um, well, so the childcare, a lot of that is just kind of peer to peer support within our group and a little bit of word of mouth. I think uh I think childcare is like honestly one of the biggest issues facing parents today in general, and especially in our field, because, you know, we start work very early, earlier than many daycares are even open, um, and end work after many daycares are closed. We did, I had, did daycare with my son for the years before COVID. And, you know, I was, my husband's a physician as well, but he's more flexible, has more flexibility, um, I was rarely ever doing a drop, you know, I'm only doing a drop off if it's like a non-clinical day uh, or pickup. So, and then that combined with the financial piece, especially as if you're a trainee, I just think the lack of accessible, affordable childcare, you know, nationally, but also in our, in our field in medicine is, is a big problem. I'd love to be able to tackle that in, a more concrete way, but I just, there's so many moving pieces. Like I'm not sure how to do that. We don't have on-site childcare at Mass General. We have a backup childcare, but it's very difficult to get into. Um, do you guys have a childcare on-site at, John, at Johns Hopkins?
0: So there is a a daycare that is kind of a, a on campus and associated with it, but it's not 24-7, right? So it still has those limitations. It definitely right. doesn't open at 5.30 in the morning. So, you know, what I I remember when I was a fellow and we had uh, babies and I remember dreaming of the idea of a 24 seven in-house childcare, right? Like how amazing that would be if you could just, whatever your shift was, you could bring your kids with you, drop them off. And when your shift was over, you could pick them up, whether that was, you know, 6 AM, 3 AM didn't matter. I I don't know if anybody does that. It would be amazing.
1: Yeah. That, that would be like the dream. I know in Europe, um, in some countries in Europe, they do have those options at the hospital. Um, and it sounds absolutely incredible, but I think there's so many infrastructure and social pieces that go into that here. Um, but we obviously provide like, you know, assistance, recommendations, just advice on childcare issues within, um, Mass General Brigham, there is like a nanny network where people can post either if they're looking for childcare or, um, also, if they're recommending, you know, a nanny that they've or a night nurse or something that somebody that they've used that they loved, which is great. And, um, you know, it's nice because those are people that have already been work, have worked with your colleagues. And so that's that's a nice resource. Um, and, you know, we'd like to like foster the community in person more. COVID made that very difficult. We've done some like meetups with the kids um, and that's always been a nice event. But I'd love to have more events with um just the kind of adults, the moms, and, you know, it's tough because everyone's so busy with their life outside of work. And it's like that balance between, do you want to go to another work event, or do you want to just be home? But um, that's one of our goals for this coming year. Have more events.
0: Absolutely. Kenza, I think we've covered a lot of really great stuff. I'm so admiring of what you have done and the the infrastructure you've put together. I think it'll really benefit a lot of other people. Is there anything we didn't cover that you think is important to, to touch on?
1: Um, I think the only, it's been, yeah, it's been great. The only other like important takeaway is I think it's just good to kind of acknowledge that like being a working mom or parent in general is really hard and like striking the right balance is very challenging. You know, for me, I came out of this like trainee, student, people-pleasing mentality out of finishing residency and a demanding fellowship, always wanting to say yes and go above and beyond into this attending role and becoming a new mother, like very shortly thereafter. And it took me a little while to realize like I don't need to say yes to everything anymore. Like I'm not a student. I'm not a trainee. I don't have to say yes to every possible thing. And I think there's a lot of power actually in saying no to things that don't serve you, whether that's at work or at home. And, um, you can't, you can't be everything to everyone. Like, I think it's very much personally a myth that you can do it all. And I think that's not serving anybody to think that you're, it's a setup for failure. Um, so if there's something at work or at home and it's not bringing me fulfillment, like I take a step back, I have to recognize that and, realize that that's going to take, if I pursue this thing that is not serving me, then it's taking away time from another thing, whether that's time with my kids or time at work doing something else I like. So I think that's like such a hard balance to strike. Um, And I think part of that contributes to why women continue to be like a minority in in leadership roles. But um, I do think trying to find that balance is is important, but I also just want to acknowledge, like, it's, it's very hard to do.
0: Yep. Yeah. I think giving yourself some permission, like you said, to not do everything, to have days where maybe you you aren't doing the best at everything, right? Like it's, it's a lot and that's okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Sometimes, you know, on both the home front and work front, just showing up, you're already doing a lot, you know, showing up, being there for your patients, doing the best you can by them, going home, doing the best you can for your kids. It might not feel like your best, but it, 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 it just showing up is a lot. So. Yep. Totally agree. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Kenza, okay. do you have something fun you'd recommend people check out?
1: Um, so I brought two books. I love to read. I was an English major in college and I still read every day. Um, two of my favorite books from this last year that were published um one was Tom Lake by Ann Patchett and the other one is Hello Beautiful by Ann um Napolitano they're both just like beautifully written um works of fiction and they both touch upon like different aspects of motherhood and being a woman and have such a good sense of place and um, yeah, I couldn't recommend them enough. I love them. If you like audiobooks, Meryl Streep narrates Tom Lake, which was like wonderful. So those are my two, two book recommendations for the Fabulous! Toy-
0: that is awesome. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I am going to recommend a, a TV show on Apple TV plus called the morning show, uh, yes. the, the newest season. Uh, we, my wife and I just finished the the most recent season, which is relatively new. Um, but the morning show is with, um, a lot of it's a fabulous cast including jennifer aniston and reese witherspoon um and it is really well done and it's about a news uh, network and kind of a lot of different things some current events some just really interesting drama and it's fun to watch and um pretty digestible so i recommend checking that out if you haven't great show kinza thank you so much it's been great having you on the show
1: thank you so much for having me
0: all right hopefully you got as much out of that as i did that was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, akrak.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay jwolpaw on Twitter. And we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash acrac. That's patreo dot slash A-C-C-R-A-C where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash acrac. Or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Aminat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Drs. April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today for the ACRAC Podcast. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.